Welcome to episode 12 of Shellshock. This week, we'll be talking about the myths and misunderstandings regarding space and space exploration, including an interview with famed UFO and alien abduction investigator Robert Schaefer, a science report on a small but growing movement that denies the NASA moon landings ever took place, as well as a good news report about an unlikely contributor to the recent satellite exploration of the planet Pluto. So if you're strapped down, zipped up, and ready for countdown, then brace yourselves for Shellshocked. So for this week's topic, Marilyn and I have decided to go where no man has gone before. Okay, that's not exactly true, where very few men or women have gone before, and that is space. Ever since humans looked up at the stars with their sophisticated brains and started trying to make sense out of what they saw, they've been getting things wrong. And it turns out that the sun and the moon are not gods, and they're not controlled by them, <laughs> And a lot of those shiny dots up there are actually other suns. We just call them stars because they're not our sun. And some of those dots are even other planets. And so in recent history, we've been able to even send hardware up there and even a handful of humans up into space to poke around and see what's out there. So you would think with all the sophisticated scientific information and data pouring back from these satellites and people and the International Space Station crew and, you know, a lot of these myths about space would have been replaced by rationality right now. <laughs> and you'd be wrong. <laughs> uh, so sad. It really is. Uh, later, I'll go in, into the astounding conspiracy theory that we never even landed on the moon. And that's a whole ball of crazy right there. But aside from that, you know, a lot of myths abound. So Marilyn and I decided that we would address some of those. And later we'll have an interview with uh, Robert Schaefer. Mr. Schaefer has been investigating a lot of these um, strange claims regarding specifically UFOs and visitations from aliens and so on. So that's a big one. Um, but, you know, with the advent of the Internet, misinformation of all kinds regarding space only seems to be getting worse. Even our own scientific literacy about how space works and the planets and the sun and all of that, it, it's just, it's terrible. A recent poll done every few years by the National Science Foundation, you're not going to believe this, Marilyn, showed that 26% of U.S. respondents didn't realize that the Earth revolves around the sun. Oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness. These people vote, presumably. <laughs> What what did it, I mean? What did they think? So apparently, the, I think the way the question was asked was which of the following is true, and it was basically oh, the okay. Earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the Earth, and twenty six percent of Americans said that the sun goes around the Earth. Back back to the ages. <laughs> I think that's sort of what it says in the Bible. I haven't read the Bible in quite a long time, but maybe they're getting mixed up there. By the way, if you think things are perfect in Europe, think again. Only 66% of respondents got that question right in Europe. Ooh. Only 66% of Europeans knew that the Earth goes around the sun. 
Oh my goodness. The internet is filled with nonsense that probably helps fuel this fire. Take this recent message that was sent around in an email and on Facebook and probably Twitter. It reads like this. August 27th at 030 hours. Lift up your eyes and look up at the night sky. On this night, the planet Mars will pass just 34.65 million miles from Earth. To the naked eye, it looks like two of the moon above the ground. Two of the moon. <laughs> the nighttime Mars will be so close to the Earth as much as in 2287. I guess they mean the year. Share the news with your friends because no one living on this Earth has ever seen this. So, accounting for the poor English here, <laughs> what they're basically saying is that when you look up at the sky on that day, August 27th, you will see the Mars up there with the moon the same size. Okay. Who would believe this? It turns out a lot of people. On the face of it, it should set off alarm bells. I mean... Something the size of Mars getting that close to Earth would be catastrophic. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't be able to see it. We'd be gone. Well, we'd be, yeah, completely. I mean, the gravitational change. I don't know a lot about physics, but I do know that you're going to have a major gravity issue here. And probably, according to Phil Plate, uh, when he was discussing what if Saturn were to get close enough for us to see it, he said that the moon would be catapulted out into outer space and would end up in an elliptical orbit around the sun. And, of course, we need our moon for the tides, although Bill O'Reilly doesn't realize that. <laughs> he said we, nobody knows what causes the tides, which just kills me. And if its orbit was just right or just wrong, as the case may be, it could end up coming back around and into the path of our planet and collide with us. And there goes humans. Yep. So, no, Mars in the night sky as big as the moon, not going to happen. Yeah, now thinking about it, I did. I, that did cross my feed at some point, but I didn't really read it because I just dismissed it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> And speaking of Mars, one of my favorite myths is about Mars. It's the famed face on Mars. And this one gets talked a lot about in skeptic circles. And I remember hearing about it back when I was a kid and totally falling for it. Did you ever hear about this one when you were a kid? I don't. I, I must have. I mean, but I don't remember the exact uh, thing that I heard. Yeah, it kind of went around like, you know, the the woman who supposedly tried to dry off her poodle in the microwave <laughs> and, uh, you know, killed it. And the woman who was at, I think they said a drive-in theater eating Kentucky Fried Chicken and she bit oh, into yeah. it. It was a rat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's those kinds of things that kids tell each other like, well, that, you know, you, you're never going to believe what happened, etc. The it's, new boogeyman stories. Exactly. You know, yeah. And we all get grossed out or freaked mm -hmm. out and then, you know, run off to play. Um, so the face on Mars, I remember hearing about it as a kid, and the way it goes is basically like this. In 1976, NASA sent up Viking 1 and Viking 2 orbiters, and they were sent to Mars to collect data, and they sent back lots of data, hundreds of images, including the first images after a landing on Mars. Um, so among the areas that they took pictures of while in orbit is this area known as Cydonia. And within one of the images released on July 5th, 1976, was a region that looked curiously like a face. 
Now, if you're a skeptic, you probably already know why this happens. It's because of the fact that our brains are these amazing pattern-seeking organs, and if something is blurred or ambiguous, your brain will often give you a perception that's kind of a best guess. And the most common best guess is a face. Now, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to figure out why that is, because evolutionarily, the animals that saw faces even when there weren't any there were more likely to survive because faces sometimes eat you. <laughs> so if it's a tiger out there or a saber tooth or, you know, a dinosaur at one point or whatever, the animals on this planet that saw those faces, even nervously, even in the random data that weren't actually faces, they survived. So visual pareidolia of faces is very common. Um, so it makes perfect sense. But to these folks who saw it, um, they saw something else. They immediately started imagining Martians. Of course. <laughs> they thought, okay, well, this is a clear sign uh, that there were Martians there, at least at one time. A happy face. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of an ambiguous face. It's just kind of a smeared face. Okay. It's not like this is the first time we've seen para visual pareidolia on the internet. I mean, my one of my favorites was the uh, Virgin Mary on the grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, yeah, that was sold in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, it's, in a, it's a, in a casino. I've never seen it. I've been to Vegas many times since then. It is sold for, I think it was $28,000 on eBay. Unbelievable. Imagine what it would have cost if she hadn't taken a bite out of it. <laughs> Maybe thirty or 40000 And then there was the nun bun that people thought looked like Mother Teresa, and Mother Teresa's people balked, so they renamed it the nun bun. Uh, yeah, that was hysterical. And so these are all examples of visual pareidolia, obviously. And, you know, it was easily dismissed by NASA as a visual perceptual artifact. Uh, but a lot, a lot of others, notably author and well-known conspiracy theorist Richard Hoagland, saw something else. To these folks, the face on Mars was a clear sign of a lost civilization who left this face for us and others to know we were here. And so, you know, unfortunately for Hoagland and his followers, NASA wasn't finished with Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Since then, they sent other probes. They've taken pictures with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Mars Global Surveyor, and this was in the 21st century with much more sophisticated cameras. In fact, the camera that's in your smartphone is many times over more sophisticated than the one that was on the Viking orbiters. And it turns out, guess what? It's a mountain range. No face. No face. Shadowing just right because of the position of the orbiter and the sun at the time and the, you know, the formation of the mountains. It makes it look somewhat like a face. Of course, that got rid of the conspiracy theory, right? No, because actually, Sheldon, curiosity, the uh, rover that went to Mars um, actually found Dracula on Mars. I <laughs> yeah. love this. Uh, UFOlogists, I guess if that's a term, um, <laughs> are convinced that um, what looks like a coffin um, also has Dracula-esque features on the coffin. So it's not just a <laughs> coffin, but it's Dracula's coffin. What are the Dracula-esque <laughs> features, I wonder? I, I have no idea. Since everything I can, I've seen of these pictures show it like really far away. So I, I'm not really sure um, w what they're seeing on here. 
That's um, creative. But they say that um, beyond, beyond the coffin is some stonework that looks like some stairs or some leftover stonework from some old civilization constructions. So 2015, and like you said, better cameras, but still having uh, pareidolia. Wow. So, you know, if you're Dracula and you're allergic to the sun, <laughs> the place you really want to be is on a planet with no atmosphere. Yeah. Because, you know, that protects you from the sun. Or wait, is it the opposite? Unbelievable. So here's another one that, that you may have never heard of. Uh, but it makes the rounds every now and then. And it's about something called the space pen. And the story goes like this. NASA wasted $1.5 million developing a space pen that could deal with weightlessness and the pressures of space travel. And after they go into great detail about the exorbitant cost and difficulty designing this pen, they then reveal that the Russians had solved this problem long ago by using pencils. <laughs> now, it's a cute story, right? It, it's a great yeah. story. It has all the elements that make stories like this popular. It's a takedown of those egghead geniuses showing how they can miss out on simple solutions that the rest of us normals might easily figure out. It's also very anti-establishment, pointing out that government waits, wastes our tax dollars. And it's anti-American, too, which makes a lot of people giggle with delight for some reason. There's only one problem. It's not true. No, Okay. Here's where it all got started. At the beginning of the space race in the 1960s, NASA realized that modern pens wouldn't write in the vacuum and weightlessness of space. So what did they do? They used pencils, of course. But in the excitement of prepping for the project called Gemini in 1965, NASA ordered mechanical pencils because, you know, regular pencils weren't good enough for the astronauts, I guess. Or maybe sharpening them in outer space would cause all that that dust to go around i don't know but they ordered them from a company called Tycam engineering manufacturing inc in houston texas now it's no secret that the entire space program was moved to texas to satisfy the desires of vice president johnson whose home state was texas and that brought a lot of prestige and business to the state but there's no justifying the fixed price contract for these mechanical pencils which they bought for 128 dollars each Wow. That's nearly $1,000 each in today's money. Wow, that's an expensive pencil. No kidding. So when <laughs> the public learned about this, there was this outcry, and NASA ended up with egg on their face. And in the future, they equipped astronauts with less expensive mechanical pencils. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. Later on, much later on, a man named Paul C. Fisher invented a new pen that had pressurized ink cartridges, functioned as, you know, a pen does normally, but in a weightless environment. It even worked underwater and in extreme temperatures from negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I don't know why anybody would want a pen to operate that way, but it did. And so his own company called Fisher Pen Company invested about $1 million of its own money in the effort and then patented its product and, you know, cornered the market. So NASA nervously tested his pens and purchased about 400 of them at $6 per unit. Oh, of course. Much more reasonable. Much more reasonable. <laughs> By the way, the Russians also used them. 
Oh, okay. So they're no, no longer using pencils. So, of course, it's really easy to see where this urban myth got started. Somebody read this story and they either got confused about the details or they, more likely, cherry-picked the details that wove it into this, you know, sort of anti-egghead, anti-NASA, anti-American narrative. But it's not true. Sometimes it really is rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not everybody is just uh, being idiotic. Um, there's a lot of people that I think put a lot of time into uh, these myths. And yeah. um, while I was doing the research for this um topic, I found this website um, about with this gentleman named Anders Yorkman, and he's been writing this um, website since for a long time, and he really believes that no person has ever been to space, ever. What? Yeah, and so everything out there from 1959 to 2015 on space travel has all been a hoax. And he has graphs, he has pictures, he has what seems like a lot of evidence um, uh, on his website, which is too long for me to go into here. But um, Sheldon, I hope you will link to it on the show notes. Um, so yeah, definitely send me that link. So that people can see, um, you know, he has put a lot of effort and a lot of time talking about, you know, um, how we would burn up or people's... Uh, uh, feet would burn up in the in on the moon, and maybe that's why the pens needed to be able to be used <laughs> at such uh, at four hundred degrees. <laughs> right. um, and you know, he just goes on and on. Um, probably one of the worst things he does is he puts up a picture of the astronauts who died for the uh, Challenger, and um, he puts uh, pictures of them now oh. to show that he has found them and they are alive and they and they didn't die. And, oh, that's just wrong. Yeah, it's terrible. So, um, you know, unfortunately, if somebody who was questioning and didn't uh, and happened to find on his website the he would look like oh my gosh look here's this expert you know um and he's given all this information and i think uh, you know unfortunately uh, some people then give credence to this and then start saying well you know if let's look at both sides and and start really uh questioning what really happened yeah and you know the sophistication of websites like this it disproves that old adage that these people are all just too dumb to know the truth. They're not dumb always. Sometimes they're really intelligent people. They're just really wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I'm really interested in uh, hearing what Schaefer's going to have to say in the interview so that he can debunk some of this stuff. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and start that interview now. Joining me now on the program is Mr. Robert Schaefer. In addition to being the first Mensa member to be on the show, Mr. Schaefer is one of the leading skeptical investigators of UFOs, as well as a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He was a founding director and past chair of the Bay Area Skeptics and has authored several important skeptical books, including Psychic Vibrations, Skeptical Giggles from the Skeptical Inquirer, the UFO Verdict, Examining the Evidence, and UFO Sightings, among other publications, as well as being a regular columnist for the Skeptical Inquirer. 
I am pleased to say that he has agreed to come on the program and talk with me a bit about his investigations into claims of UFO sightings and alien abductions. Mr. Schaefer, welcome to Shellshocked. Thank you, Sheldon. So let's start out by just answering a very simple question, I think, which is, what does it mean when someone says they've seen a UFO? Well, obviously, you, the U in UFO means unidentified, nothing more than that. It just means that they have seen something that, that in the sky, mostly, that they can't identify and that they don't understand. And, uh, of course, in most people's minds, UFO has to do with, um, you know, an alien spacecraft. Um, but of course, you know, if somebody sees something in a light in the sky, typically that they can't identify, um, that's about the the least likely explanation is that you've seen this uh, interstellar spacecraft that has just arrived from Alpha Centauri or something like that. <laughs> now, there's all kinds of stuff up there. There's, I mean, there's stars and planets. There's. Uh, um, aircraft of all kinds, satellites, and uh, nowadays, of course, people are flying drones. Many of these drones have lights on them. Uh, there's Chinese lanterns, balloons of all kinds. So when somebody says UFO, it just means, well, I saw something and I don't know what it is. Although people today pretty much take for granted that these UFO sightings have always been with us, that's not exactly true. When did this all really start in the United States? Well, Yes and no. Uh, I mean, in the past, people would see things up in the sky, and sometimes their imaginations would, uh, uh, you know, run wild, and they would say that, you know, I've seen the hand of God, or I have seen an angel in the sky, or I have seen, uh, you know, an army coming to punish us, uh, you know, for our sins, or something like that. So, uh, but if we're talking about the contemporary, or what is called the modern era of UFOs, it all began, uh, well, it's an easy question to ask, June 24th, 1947, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, where he, uh, Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot flying over uh, Mount Rainier in uh, Washington State, said that he saw a flight of, was it nine objects that, that appeared to be in a formation? Um, he said that they, actually his first comment was, look like a flock of geese. Uh, but he concluded somehow that they were very far away and therefore they were traveling at uh, over a thousand miles an hour, uh, which would have been faster than any aircraft at the time. If that was correct, if however it was quite a bit closer, it may well have been. When he said a flock of geese, I don't think he was that far off. People had been arguing about that for quite a while and some people tried to find, you know, explanations in meteorological optics like you saw mirages of the tops of distant mountains and such. I think it's making it a lot more complicated uh, than it needs to be. Uh, the, what is it, the American white pelican is the largest bird in North America and they fly in uh, small formations like that and uh, if he somehow got, you know, misestimated the distance and thought that they were, um, you know, much further away than they really were, I think that would explain it. It's interesting that when you look at the drawings that Kenneth Arnold made of what he said he saw, he did not say, did not draw something that looked like a saucer. He drew something, he drew something that looked like a boomerang, uh, you know, that uh, boomerang-type shape. In fact, he drew something that's rather bird-like. Um, but... Uh, the reason that, that people called it flying saucers had to do with a, 
a reporter's error, essentially. That's when uh, a reporter interviewing him about this, he said that they they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. In other words, erratically bouncing up and down, rather bird-like again. But uh, the uh, the reporter then said, you know, titled them as flying saucers, not because they look like saucers, but because they skipped like a saucer would. And that's when flying saucers were born in the in the last week of uh, June of 1947. By within a few days, it was a huge news story everywhere that uh, everybody had heard of flying saucers by this time. And back when I was a New Ager, I remember a lot of people reciting the fact that it wasn't just everyday folks who had seen these UFOs. Uh, former President you Jimmy were Carter. New Ager? Oh, that's hard for me to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go back to uh, episode one of Shell Shocked and you can hear that story. I was a New oh. Ager. Yeah. <laughs> But what people would say to me was, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter has seen a UFO in the late 1960s. So their tone was, if a U.S. president has seen one, then they must be real. So what do we actually know about President <laughs> Carter's sighting? Well, actually, I'm the one who investigated it, and uh, I wrote it up uh, not only in my uh, book, uh, UFO Sightings, um, but, uh, in fact, it, it's been mentioned in a number of uh, um, articles and such. In fact, even uh, in the Humanist magazine, back when Paul Kurtz was the editor of the Humanist magazine, which was 77 or something like that, that uh, I think that was the very first explanation published, and I, and I uh, wrote that article. Basically, it's not that the um, case itself was difficult to explain. What was difficult was to get information about it, oh. because, uh, you know, at this point, when this became a big headline, Jimmy Carter has seen a UFO. At this point, he was already running for president, and uh, he wasn't obviously going to say anything about it. I can just imagine his advisor saying, "Stay, Jimmy, don't say that. You know, <laughs> stay away from that UFO stuff. People are going to think you're crazy. They won't vote for you." So, uh, you know, he clammed up on it. Um, but uh, actually, the, he had reported this a few years earlier. I think it was 1973 when the nation was in uh, the throes of a major and perhaps the last major sightings uh, epidemic that was um, pretty much nationwide. Uh, the subject came up while well, Jimmy Carter, who at that time was the governor of Georgia, and he was talking to some reporters, and he said, well, I don't... Um, you know, I don't laugh when people say that they've seen a UFO because I saw one myself. And this was reported in a few newspapers, but it... Um, you know, there were no details or anything. Um, well, it turns out that uh, I, I lucked on to, because, uh, you know, I tried to follow, you know, different these news reports, and it was in the National Enquirer and everything. A lot of the details were wrong, and uh, I just couldn't, you know, where was the date, where, what was the location, you know, exactly, what was the time. Uh, you just, unless you have any information about a reported UFO sighting, you don't have a prayer of, uh, trying to uh, come up with a proper explanation for it. But fortunately, there was a, um, a UFO researcher guy by the name of Hayden Hughes uh, in Oklahoma who was a, uh, had a small UFO group there. When he saw one of these um, clippings, I think, from the Atlanta Constitution or something like that, where they mentioned uh, the, the Carter UFO in 73, he sent a um, copy of his UFO sighting report form to Governor Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, Capitol Building, uh, Atlanta. 
And um, believe it or not, Carter actually filled it out in his own hand, uh, handwriting, and you know, and then mailed it back. And uh, so, and uh, he was—he uh, apparently lost the original, but he—he he still had a uh, photographic copy of it, and he—he he sent me his uh, only copy. And then I uh, it was uh, on a 35 millimeter slide. I. Um, made a bunch of more copies of it, prints, and then mailed his originals back to him. And uh, so it turns out that he revealed the, uh, uh, he didn't know the um, the exact day he was guessing, and he was a few months off, it turned out, but he knew where and when it was. It was in Leary, Georgia, a very small town, and he was going to uh, um, give a talk uh, there. And as they were standing outside, uh, waiting for this thing to begin at like 7.30 or whatever time it was, that uh, they uh, he saw this, and uh, I spoke to several other people in uh, Leary. Nobody paid much attention to that. One guy said, well, he thought there was something up there, but it wasn't anything. And, uh, well, it turns out that, uh, again, and, and I'm, saying, I'm going into this just to emphasize how difficult it can be sometimes to solve a very simple case because right. we still didn't know the date. Now we knew where it was. Fortunately, in the Lions Club headquarters, which was in Illinois, I spoke to somebody there, and um turns out that they typically would, would get rid of papers, uh, you know, uh, and when they get to be five years old or whatever it was. And uh, But this fellow who was, was cleaning out the papers, he looked at us and he says, hey, this is signed by Jimmy Carter. He's running for president. You know, this has historical value. I'm hanging on to this. <laughs> and that had the date on it, which was, uh, I think it was January the 6th of 1969. Well, you put all this information together, location, place, time. You got Venus right where he said he saw his UFO. Right. And that's typical. It's not, you know, he's, oh, he's a president. He would have well, he wasn't president then. And even if he had been, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. He'd, he'd still be looking at Venus. And, uh, and that's the most common thing, especially when you're out in the countryside and you don't have a lot of lights around and you see something that's extremely bright, like Venus or Jupiter or something like that. Um, and especially the, you know, the human eye can't, they call it the autokinetic effect. You can't, focus on something, uh, a bright object in a dark background. It appears to be moving around. It's not moving around. It's the muscles uh, in your eye are making your eye move around and but you're going to attribute that motion to the object itself. So it's, it's a very common effect. Venus has been called the queen of the UFOs because there's no other object that is um, mistaken uh, for a UFO or reported as a UFO as frequently as Venus. Fascinating. Because it's the brightest planet that uh, in the sky is the brightest object other than the sun and the moon. And, you know, back when I was a New Ager, I also noticed that there is a lot of overlap with these beliefs and conspiracy theories. I would go to an exorcism, for instance, and there would be UFO paraphernalia in the back, books, videotapes, etc. And one thing that kept coming up over and over was this men in black idea, which, as you know, by the late 1990s became a term that's in the common American lexicon because of the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones movie. So how did all that get started, the men in black? What exactly are they supposed to be? Well, uh, let me just give you a brief answer, as I think will serve. Um, the, the movies about the men in black are derived from a comic book version of it, which is uh, um, uh, written by a guy by the name of Lowell Cunningham, and um, I was on a panel with him um, 
uh, in a science fiction convention all oh, about three years back. Uh, turned out to be a very nice guy. Uh, I, I got along with him quite well. And uh, anyway, so I asked him on the panel, I said, you know, where did you get your ideas about this? Because I explained that essentially the, the movies had inverted the men in black. They're good guys in the movie, but that's not how they originally were. When the first stories about the men in black got started back, where the heck, what year was that? I was 50. 53 or something, uh, way back to Al Bender and the International Flying Saucer Bureau, um, <laughs> which is practically one of the very first uh, UFO groups anywhere. Uh, you know, it was sort of like a fan club, really, of uh, UFOs. It wasn't any serious. Uh, uh, Bender claimed that he was going to reveal the secret of the saucers in the next issue of his newsletter, and everybody got all excited about that. He had finally he had discovered what where the saucers are really from. And then when the next issue came out, they didn't say anything of the kind. And so people were kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, grabbing him and saying, you know, what's going on here, Al? What happened to those? Uh, what's the secret of the saucers? He says, well, I can't tell you. I was visited by three men in black. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, that's another thing that the movie gets wrong. It's not two men in black, it's three men in black. And um, they were, you know, menacing. And they said, you know, if you know what's good for you, you, you won't tell anyone. Uh, and, of course, they drove in these old black Cadillac and wore these, you know, black suits and black hats and everything like that. And they have this vaguely, you know, otherworldly air to them. Um, and then Greg Barker, who uh, was a writer, a very interesting character, um, I knew him. Uh, he wrote a book in 1956, taking his title from Hitchcock. It, 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 uh, the title was, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And it was a story about people who supposedly were visited by the men in black and silenced by them. And it was just a huge pile of hooey. Um, it, uh, for example, he said that James Mosley, who was a good friend of his, had been silenced by the men in black back in 1955 or something. And, you know, uh, Mosley only died a couple of years ago, and he was one of the least silenced people anywhere. <laughs> he would say anything that, uh, you know, came into his mind, no matter who it, uh, would get offended by it or whatever. So um, th this, it, yeah, it became part of the folklore and uh, because, you know, it's a very nice paranoid story that there's these three mysterious men in black who are, you know, sneaking around. And uh, if you see a UFO, or especially if you took a picture of a UFO, and, of course, in those days, you know, it would be film. It wouldn't be digital. They would come and they'd say, give me the negatives to that film if you know what's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's very convenient, too, because it's one of those cases where evidence is evidence and lack of evidence exactly. is evidence. So they're covered exactly. either way. Why Why are there no really good close-up pictures of UFOs and aliens? Because the men in black come and confiscate all the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> So this is another question that comes up, and I know this question is beneath you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, do you believe there's life somewhere else out there in the universe, and how does that fit into this argument of UFOs, or does it? Well, for people who have studied astronomy, the average person doesn't have any conception of how huge the universe is. I mean, they know it's big in a general sense, but they have absolutely no idea how incredibly big it is. Uh, even our own galaxy 
takes light 100,000 years to cross from one end of the galaxy to the other. That's 100,000 years. Uh, and and that's just our galaxy, you know? The closest galaxy is uh, approximately a little over 2 million uh, light years away, the uh, Andromeda galaxy, and it's about the same size as our galaxy. And if you just stop to think about the, the sheer number of planets and our recent uh, findings are that um, solar systems are very common. Planets are very common among stars. That it, it's uh, it's not at all unusual for stars to have planets. This seems to be more the rule. And now that being the case, when when you look at just this incredible number of billions and billions of galaxies, I can't see there's any way that there couldn't be. You know, to say how could anybody rule out? you know, life uh, evolving on other planets, especially since, you know, it seems to be a natural process. There's certainly nothing supernatural uh, going on, and there's certainly nothing that's uh, remarkable about Earth. Earth just is, does not seem to be particularly unusual in any way, shape, or form, or our solar system to be too unusual. So uh, I would be astonished if there were not lots of other planets that have life, and some of them even with intelligent life. But that doesn't mean they can get here. That means, you know, there may be somebody who's, you know, 5,000 light years away. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll catch their, you know, transmissions on the radio someday, and we'll send them a message, hey, how are you? And then 10,000 years later, we get a reply that says, we're fine, how are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you think about what that means, um, the notion that, you know, that there are going to be these interplanetary spacecraft just zipping around, is uh, it's pretty preposterous. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, I can assure you. Uh, I'm, of course, we're going to have in the show notes links to your various publications and where people can go. But tell us a little bit more about where people can directly go to find out more about you and your skeptical work, etc. Well, my blog is uh, badufos.com. I try to keep up to date on most of the major UFO claims. And there's a search box up there, so if there's any sort of, you know, reasonably recent story or classic story, just put that name either of that case or the person that you want to look up about, and uh, probably there's a good chance something is on there. Also, um, I have uh, uh, debunker.com as a website, uh, which is not limited to UFOs. It has uh, other things as well. But um, there's quite a bit of UFO material there. That the, the bunker.com tends to be more the, the uh, older cases and the uh, older investigations, and the bad UFOs tends to be the, the more recent stuff. And uh, then uh, more recently, I have uh, Psychic Vibrations uh, as a book, which is also the title of my uh, column in the Skeptical Inquirer, and that is some of the uh, selected columns from. Uh, uh, from uh, especially from the earlier parts of uh, the earlier years, and then maybe at some point I'll have and follow that up with uh, some of the later columns in another book. Well, that'll keep you busy, huh? <laughs> I know it does. It really does. Great. Well, Robert Schaefer, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's good to talk to you, Sheldon. And, uh, good to see you with Tam, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay, great. The Science Report.
Those 12 iconic words form what is doubtless the best of all known quotes in the history of space exploration. On July 20, 1969, the greatest feat in scientific history occurred. The world's first manned mission to land on the moon carried American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin into space as well as into the annals of history. This achievement followed nearly a decade after the Soviet Union's own Luna 2 mission became the first man-made object to land on the lunar surface, sparking a space race with the United States that would pit the two countries and their people in a battle for scientific supremacy. In the 41 months after this momentous occasion, 10 more American men would land on the moon, in a total of a half-dozen manned U.S. landings between 1969 and 1972. To date, the United States is the only country to have successfully conducted manned missions to the moon. Of course, that's the official narrative. If you ask a growing number of people worldwide, they have quite a different view of this story. In fact, they think it never even happened. If you're asking yourself, what sort of argument could possibly be concocted that would refute the best-known and most widely witnessed event in human history, you may be underestimating the degree to which people can use their creativity and suspicion of authority to deny irrefutable facts. Here are just a few of the questions brought up by these moon-landing deniers. 1. Why are there no stars in the photos taken on the moon? To answer this question, you need to know a little about photography and a bit about the moon itself. First of all, this is one of the few claims made by moon landing deniers that's actually true. There clearly are no stars visible in the sky behind the astronauts as they pose for pictures on the moon. But this is what would be expected when taking photographs on the highly reflective lunar surface. Its light color meant that a large amount of the sunlight pouring down on the astronauts required that their cameras be set to take pictures in high light and using a very high frame rate, between 1 150th and 1 250th of a second, with a small aperture setting. As a result, the cameras simply weren't able to gather enough light from the dim stars to cause them to show up on the images. 2. Since only two astronauts were supposedly on the moon, who took the pictures of Buzz Aldrin in which you can clearly see Neil Armstrong in the reflection on his visor not holding a camera? A link to the photo in question can be found in the show notes. And if you look closely, you can in fact clearly see Neil Armstrong in the reflection on Aldrin's visor. But if you know a bit about their suits, this question is easily answered. Armstrong took the picture all right. But his camera, like Aldrin's, was actually housed outside his spacesuit, just below his breastbone. So we wouldn't expect to see him holding a camera up in front of his face and visor. What we'd expect to see is one of his hands near his chest. And that's exactly what we do see. Number three. It's well known that the moon has no atmosphere. So why is the American flag that they planted there waving in the film like it's in a breeze? This one's easy to answer. It isn't. So why does it look that way in the film of astronauts Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell erecting the flag? 
The explanation here is that the illusion is actually due to the way the flag was designed. NASA created this flag so that it had rigid, extendable support pieces on the top and bottom, so that the flag would look taut. But in the middle of setting it up, Shepard and Mitchell found that the bottom rod had been jammed and wouldn't fully extend. The waving that we see is actually the men twisting the somewhat crumpled flag's pole into the ground. In fact, astronauts on a later mission had plans to repair the rod, but they liked the way the crumpling made it look as if it were waving in the wind, so they decided to leave it the way it was. So why do people not believe? There are probably a myriad of reasons for this, but my own survey of the research boils down to three possibilities. First, distance in history. From almost the beginning of the first Apollo mission, a small group of Americans have denied that the moon landing had taken place. This group seems to be expanding as the events of the Apollo recede into history. At the time of the first landings, opinion polls showed that overall, less than 5% doubted the moon voyage had taken place. Fueled by a variety of conspiracy theories, this number has grown over time. According to a 2004 poll, overall numbers remained the same, but over 27% of Americans between 18 and 24 years of age expressed doubts that NASA went to the moon. Now, doubt is certainly not the same thing as outright denial, but this trend seems to demonstrate a growing mistrust of the official story among those who didn't personally witness the events. So as with other forms of denial of world events, distance in history matters. Second, a general distrust in government. Unlike during the Apollo era, today's youth is generally more skeptical and suspicious of their government. Add this to the fact that the Apollo missions were so distant in the first place, they're clearly more easily influenced by the misinformation they get bombarded with on a host of so-called moon hoax websites. And thirdly, and this one may surprise you, an increase in science literacy. On the face of it, it would seem logical that a lack of understanding of science would make people more susceptible to this type of myth. But studies like that of Dan Cahan at Yale University show quite the opposite. According to his research on what he terms the science communication problem, people who reject the scientific consensus don't generally lack the ability to grasp it. On the contrary, they tend to use scientific knowledge to reinforce beliefs that have already been shaped by their worldview. In one study, Cahan asked over 1,500 randomly selected subjects to rate the threat of climate change on a scale of 0 to 10. He then correlated that with the subject's science literacy. What he found was that higher science literacy was associated with stronger views at both ends of the spectrum. In other words, science literacy promoted polarization, not consensus. According to Cahan, Americans fall into two basic camps. There are those with a more egalitarian and communitarian mindset who are generally suspicious of industry and more likely to side with a strong government. In contrast, people with a hierarchical and individualistic mindset respect independence and leaders of industry and are less trusting of government officials, the highly educated, and people in power. This research could also answer questions as to why some people fully reject the NASA story, with those more trusting of government being likely to accept the events as they're told in the history books, 
and those more suspicious of people in power being prone towards seeking out scientific evidence or anomalies that support their own preconceived notions. Whatever the case, as with other forms of denial from the Holocaust to climate change, it's up to those of us who respect the scientific worldview to encourage those around us to use critical thinking to overcome our biases and preconceptions. And only with a populace who does that can we hope to continue to explore that final frontier and learn more about this incredible universe we call home. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is the good news. This week's story comes from the Smithsonian website and is about Brian May. May might be best known for the guitar riffs in songs like Bohemian Rhapsody, Fat Bottom Girls, and We Will Rock You, but he is more than just a world-famous rock star. He is also an astrophysicist. May studied physics and mathematics at Imperial College London. From 1970 to 1974, he studied for a Ph.D. degree at Imperial College, studying reflected light from interplanetary dust and the velocity of dust in the plane of the solar system. But he was also in a little band called Queen, which was becoming an international sensation at the same time. When Queen started to have this international success in 1974, he abandoned his doctoral studies, but he did co-author two scientific research papers, MGI Emission in the Night Sky Spectrum in 1972 and An Investigation of the Motion of Zodiacal Dust Particles, Part 1, in 1973, which were based on his observations at the Tide Observatory in Tenerife. In October 2006, May re-registered for his Ph.D. at Imperial College and submitted his thesis in August 2007. As well as writing up the previous work he had done, May had to review the work on zodiacal dust undertaken during the intervening 33 years, which included the discovery of the zodiacal dust bands by NASA's infrared astronomical satellite. After an oral exam, the revised thesis entitled A Survey of Radial Velocities in the Zodiacal Dust Cloud was approved in September 2007, some 37 years after it had been commenced. He was able to submit his thesis only because of the minimal amount of research on the topic during the intervening years, and May has described the subject as one that became trendy again in the 2000s. He graduated at the awards ceremony of Imperial College held in the Royal Albert Hall on May 14, 2008. In October 2007, May was appointed a visiting researcher in Imperial College and continues his interest in astronomy and involvement with the Imperial Astrophysics Group. He is co-author with Sir Patrick Moore and Chris Lintott of May, The Complete History of the Universe, published in 2006, and The Cosmic Tourist, published in 2012. Asteroid 52665 Brian May was named in his honor on June 18, 2008, at the suggestion of Sir Patrick Moore. May appeared on the 700 episode of The Sky at Night, hosted by Sir Patrick Moore, along with Chris Lintott, John Colshaw, Professor Brian Cox, and the astronomer Martin Rees, who on departing the panel told Brian May, who was joining it, I don't know a scientist who looks as much like Isaac Newton as you do. During the Pluto flyby NASA press conference held on July 17, 2015, at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, Brian May was introduced as a science team collaborator. 
So as New Horizons passed by the planet Pluto, May stood by alongside the NASA team helping to sort out and interpret new data as it was transmitted. In a post on his blog, May wrote that the gods of the underworld must have been with me because I was there when the first full planet picture was downloaded from the probe. In addition to sifting through some of the images and information gleaned from New Horizons, May compiled the first high-quality stereo image of Pluto. On his blog, May writes that he has long been a fan and was excited for the chance to work with the new Pluto photographs as they arrived on Earth. Have you ever stopped to think that we have two eyes, but cameras only have one lens? There's a really easy way to see what the limitation of one lens is. If you hold a pen out in front of you at arm's length and alternately close your left and right eye, you see the pen appear to move against whatever is behind it. The pen, of course, isn't moving. Your eye is just seeing it at a different point. So when you have a camera like Lori on New Horizons, it only has one of those viewpoints. You don't get the same depth. We evolved with two eyes, and so we get two separate pictures of the world reaching our brain, coming from the two different eyes, and our brain puts them together and makes an incredible stereoscopic, in-depth view of the universe around us. A stereoscope reproduces that. So May was instrumental in creating a stereoscopic image of Pluto, and it's probably the first real stereoscopic picture of Pluto in the entire universe. May was lucky enough to be in the room when these pictures came down from the mission, so he was able to put them together. And what you see is a phenomenal sphere jumping off the page, and all kinds of surface detail. You can see more surface detail than you can in a straight image. Stereoscopic images also give you a lot of information because you can get heights and you can get the whole shape of mountain ranges, establish the depth of craters, etc. New Horizons will eventually send back dedicated images for stereoscopic data. In the meantime, NASA will have to continue to make its own. Of course, the New Horizon guys were already doing serious science on this image as it arrived, May wrote, but I was able to assemble the two images to make the most satisfying stereo view I can ever remember making. It seems even rock stars can get giddy when they get to meet their heroes backstage. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, that's it, and thanks for listening. If you haven't dropped by our Facebook fan page, please do so and weigh in on a survey link I posted there. We have a lot of options for delivering content to our listeners, but Marilyn and I want to be sure and focus our efforts only on those that are convenient for all of you. So if you listen using iTunes or Stitcher or on my website or just from the links we post on Facebook, we'd like to know. Also, we'll be busy compiling the audio messages listeners have sent to us for possible inclusion in a future episode. We're always open to ideas about segments to add and ways we can improve the show or cover topics you're interested in, and the SpeakPipe link on our Facebook page allows you to give us that kind of feedback. So once again, thanks for listening, and be sure and tune in next week. But until then, you've been shell-shocked.